0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the sports Pro Streamtime Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead at SportsPro, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Today, we have a very special episode. At this year's sports pro OTT Awards, we inducted our inaugural class into our broadcast hall of fame. Over the next couple months, the Streamtime Podcast will have the privilege to sit down with them and hear their stories across their decades of experience. In the first of these interviews, we are joined by Timo Lume. His career began as a lawyer before moving to IMG, and then he had stints at Nike. Quoka, which I'm very interested to hear more about that experience, ESPN, and then where he's been since 2004 as the Managing Director of the IOC's Television and Marketing Services. Timo, it's a pleasure to have you to join us on this episode of the Streamtime Podcast.
1: Oh, good morning. Uh, really good to be on here. Like, thanks for having me.
0: Well, We've got a whole list of questions to get into today, and it's going to be a little bit different from some of the episodes Nick and I do, where it's going to be a bit more, I guess, retrospective and hearing a bit more about your career and some of your journey um, along the way, as opposed to maybe some of the more in-depth business strategy we have. But kind of the first question I want to ask you, and I think it's probably a bit interesting for Nick and I, because, you know, although we're based in London, neither of us are from here you know, even though him and I both have a bit of a, a traveled experience to gain to where we're at now, it's not quite as, um, I'd say, diverse as yours. You know, my understanding is you were born in Helsinki before moving to Brussels and then West Germany, uh, and then maybe attended a Belgian military school before you finally found yourself uh, living in the UK and then eventually attending university in London. So how did all of those experiences moving around so much growing up kind of shape you?
1: That's a really good question. I, th- I think, um, I mean, we're all the sum of our experiences, right? So, um I mean, I think uh, it just gives you, I think one thing, it gives you a different perspective. And I think it also, as a, if you want to say a life lesson, gives you um, an understanding that people view things from their own, usually local perspectives and differently. So um it really led to the perspective, I think that, there are more things that bind us uh you know people around the world and make us similar but often the way that we approach these things may be from different uh, angles so um i don't want it to sound like a sort of 101 negotiation class but i mean in a in a sense it was it was that that was the sort of broadest perspective that uh, even though people and i think in today's world people are characterized as being much more similar. I think you go back uh, 30, 40 years, it wasn't always the case. So I, in, in those days, that was probably the sort of insight it gave me.
2: Uh, Timo, I was just wondering, you, um, at what time did you, I don't know if you can have, if you can remember a specific moment, but was there a moment when you, you really recognized that your diverse background and upbringing really was an asset to you? Was there a particular point or is it something that you, know, you probably take, took for granted for a, probably a long, a long part of your career?
1: Well, I think I probably—I mean, obviously, I always knew that uh, I was uh, displaced somewhat. I wouldn't—I wouldn't describe it in that those terms, but uh, uh, I mean, perhaps I was always a little bit of an outsider looking in. Although, you know, I do have to emphasise that I think you know you can probably tell from my accent that uh, I, I did become quite quite British-sized, and uh, um, you know, have a have a have a lot of connections, including my wife being British. But I think I think it's more. I mean, you, you, you're you sort of aware of it throughout your uh, childhood and sort of um, your, your, your uh, perhaps tertiary education. I think it, where it really kicked in was when I actually moved away from Britain. Uh, so my first port of call was in France. And you start realizing, because I was somewhat exotic to the French in 1989 when I arrived in Paris as a Finn who spoke English. And uh, at the time, my, my French was a little bit rusty, but picked up pretty quickly. And so I was a, sort of a you know an international animal, and you know it, it really led to the sort of uh, the type of perspective we had, particularly working in the context of that was my first Olympic experience, which was then um, effectively I think as a team, even though we had a lot of French people, there, it was it wasn't yes it was a French Olympic Games. This was the Albert uh, Albertville Olympic Winter Games, but it was also we also recognised quickly that it was a global property with people from all um, you know, walks of life and different countries are participating. So that, that's where it really sort of hit home and, and, if you like, sort of became a bit of sort of equity, you know, in terms of my approach and character.
0: Now, you mentioned, you know, we have more similarities and differences, which I would agree with. And I think one of the things that exemplifies that more than anything else is sports, you know, whether, you know, we're watching the World Cup last night, and you're seeing all these groups of people coming together, that's really sort of what the Olympic story is about bringing everybody together with those similarities. You know, in my eyes, I think most people who work in sports uh, either love sports or they're a failed athlete like myself, and it's hard to to, to move away from that passion we have for it. Uh, you know, growing up as you were going around all of those different countries, was there a particular sport you loved playing growing up, or is there a particular sporting moment that sticks out to you in your head as you know, as a child, and that maybe perhaps led you down this path?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. By the way, Chris, I've got to pick you up on that. We're not failed athletes. We're just not quite as successful as the others. You know, it's a, you know, it's a way of looking at things. But, but I, I suppose yes. I mean, my I, probably my first love was uh, athletics, or you know, I don't know if you call it track and field in Australia, athletics, but it's um, uh, certainly track in the US. But uh, th- that was that was really my um, kind of awakening to to sports. Um, I have the vaguest of vague memories when I was in school in, in Germany at this, this Belgian military school that the Grenoble Winter Olympics were happening, but really where it, where it came to life to me was a very, very, two specific moments. I was 10 years old. My parents had deposited me at my grandmother's in Helsinki, and I happened to be watching the European Championships of Athletics, and it was a 10,000 meters and the last lap, and I I, I mean, YouTube it, it and uh, I don't know if you can get the Finnish commentary, but it still, you know, sends um, the hairs on the back of my neck up. But basically, it was two guys. It was a guy called Juha Wärteinen, who was the Finnish hero, and an East German runner called Jürgen Haas. And they basically had a two-way sprint the whole, whole of the last lap. And it was, you know, I mean, I'm almost choking up thinking about it, but it was, you know, and it was... A famous Finnish victory. It was the the championships took place in Helsinki, so a few kilometers down the road where I was watching that, um, and it was just the most incredible outbreak of you know nas- uh, you know patriotic pride. Um, so that sort of waked me to the whole thing, and then the next year, of course, was the uh, the Munich Olympics, and so I was eleven. Now, of course, uh, those games were tinged with um, you know incredible uh, drama and and, and tragedy. Which I sort of got as an eleven-year-old, but still didn't um, dampen the incredible um, uh, feat. As far as we 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 looked at it, it was basically Finland won the gold in fifteen hundred meters, five thousand meters, and ten thousand meters. You know, it hadn't happened since uh, before the uh, the um, or in between the, the wars with the likes of Paavo Nurmi. And so the the bit that I particularly remember was in the the first race was uh, La Sevilla and taking part in the ten thousand meters, and you may remember, but face it, famously he fell, and I was so upset I had I had to go to the loo, thinking that it was all over, you know, crying. And my mum came and, and pulled me out. He said, "He's got up, he's got up, and he's, you know, rejoined the leaders." Anyway, he 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 won, and um, I still have a um, a. Um, you will remember this, an LP, a long playing album, which has four sets of commentary on, on one side has the 10,000, the 5,000 from Munich, and on the other side has 5,000, 10,000 from Montreal. And I can still remember Emil Putterman's uh, approaching on the last bend getting to the final straight and uh the Finnish commentator saying I oh, now, you know Putteman's is coming hor- you know horribly close and then uh you know Viren kicked away and won um so so those were really really powerful uh, emotions and uh but what what um I mean it sort of chokes me up but um what what um, maybe beyond the race it opened me up was was the power of the Olympics somehow as I uh I mean obviously in the context of Munich it was horribly tragic, but I mean, the the whole positive side of Olympism really sort of grabbed me at an early age, even though, you know, it didn't come to sort of manifest that itself uh, professionally until uh, many, many years later. But, you know, so Olympics was kind of my, my first, uh, you know, athletics and the Olympics was really where it all started for me.
2: Really hard to beat that one. I mean, I was trying to reflect as you were talking about that, Timo, what my first memories were, and I think nothing is dramatic as that, although I do remember... As a kid, our whole school and school system shutting down to watch the 1500 meter men's freestyle relay in the swimming. Uh, because Australia was so dominant in, in the pool back when I was uh, at school, so we used to win medals in pretty much every, in nearly every race, every other race, and um, we were dominant in the 1500. And so our whole school stopped to watch a tiny little TV in the corner uh, and watch uh, a world record from uh, Kieran Perkins, I think it was at the time, uh, who now is the chief executive of Australians the Olympics or or swimming. I think might be might be swimming. Maybe
1: yeah, I don't think it's uh the, the, no, it's not the Olympics. Yeah, could, could be swimming.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously in Australia's culture, sport is everything. So for those tempo moments, uh, it it wasn't uncommon for us to get around a a whole, uh, hundreds of people to get around a little TV to watch those, those moments that the Olympics, uh, bestowed on us. Um, Chris, what about yourself? Mine was
0: actually, I can remember sneaking out of bed. It was past my bedtime But I remember sneaking down to watch Michael Jordan hit the uh, step back on Brian Russell with officially 5.2 seconds left on the clock. Like that amount of time on the clock will always kind of be stuck in my head. But that I think I must have been like six or seven. So like that's kind of really I can barely just remember about anything. But I'll always remember there's 5.2 seconds left on the clock when MJ hit that step back on Brian Russell in the finals.
2: Still a question whether that was a foul or not. But we won't we won't (laughs) go into that. Uh, Timo, I'm curious. So you've talked we've talked a little bit about your your childhood and growing up and and then. The, the, i guess the the realization of that how important that background was to you as, as time went by when you've lived in these different countries i'm just curious on your your sense of where you're from because I, i'm so i'm australian my my wife's swedish you know we live in england so we have this even now they're only quite young my oldest is nearly five years old we still have this almost uh, dy- weird dynamic where at times we're talking about being Australian other times we're talking about being Swedish and at times we're talking about being English and when the World Cup's on we're trying to support different teams and same will come with the Olympics uh, next time around I'm just wondering ha- have you always doubled down on your your Finnish roots or have you been a bit of a chameleon to that as you've sort of developed uh, or lived for longer periods of time in England and Switzerland. Since how how have you approached? I don't know. Again, I'm not approached like a it's like a business mindset. But how have you felt in that dynamic? Have you always doubled down on that that Finnish background originally?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're sort of ideological about it. At least I'm not. I mean, it tends to be um, as a function of your sort of emotional connection. So um, I mean, I, I'm you know I was born Finnish and I'm, I'm you know I'll, I'll die Finnish. You know, and proud of it. But um, and so you know supporting finland in the olympics has always been you know the thing i mean i was you know I, i'll i'll cherish to my dying day being um, being at the um, the ice hockey hall watching uh, finland win their first ever uh, ice hockey men's gold for example but you know then having you know some of my formative years in uh, england i mean you know i'll i'll uh, i i support england at football and rugby you know and and actually i follow them at cricket so i'm following the the tests in 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 pakistan um, and and that's just the that's just a function of experience of the friends I have and and uh, you know we we all have WhatsApp groups and uh, um, so you, you you stay in contact that way and and then more recently you know we, we, we the whole family became Swiss so we got Swiss passports as well and and so okay you know you, I mean that's a little bit more acquired but the fact is that uh, you know we've lived here for eighteen years which is you know the single longest stretch of where I've lived anywhere in my life so. You know, when you look at the the ski races, uh, you know, you look at um, various other events that Switzerland. You know, you, you also associate uh, with them. So, I mean, I don't I don't think tend to think of it as a sort of singular thing because again, it's a sort of layering thing of of the emotional bonds created by the experience of life. And uh, I mean, maybe maybe that's a bit different. I, I think that's much much more usual now. I mean, I don't know about you guys, my, my kids went to international school here. And so, you know, that, that was sort of very, very natural. But, um, you know, if I talk to my uncle, for example, who actually lives in England, is one of my few relatives, doesn't live in Finland. But he, um, and he would be eligible for a British passport, I think, just because he's been there so long. Or, or, but, you know, he says, no, I can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm Finnish and that's it. Um, and in fact, it wasn't until about, Maybe twenty years ago, maybe fifteen years ago, that you could actually have another nationality if you're you were Finnish. You know, some countries are still like that. So, so I, I think that's a you know phenomenon which reflects uh, the way the world is uh, is going, which is you know I think a good thing as well.
0: I'm trying to think, Nick. You've got your British citizenship. I think I'm a year away before I could potentially apply for mine. But I think my plan is to go get it. Um. Yeah.
2: At one stage, we flew to Sweden for holidays, and I think. I can't remember what 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 order it was. I was on my Australian. One of the kids was on the British, and my wife was on the Swedish. That raised a few questions of border control. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we had to explain that one.
0: Yeah. So moving along, Timo. You know, you mentioned the Olympic spirit was kind of, you know, inside of you since you know watching that race as a child, but you actually took a different route you didn't necessarily start in sports and you know we did ask a couple of questions before the interview and you mentioned you were sat in an airport heathrow specifically ready to fly back to finland and you were reading mark mccormick's book what they don't teach you at harvard business school and you mentioned that was kind of maybe perhaps a turning point because at that point you were training to be a lawyer and sort of maybe reading that book uh, inspired you to go to a different route working more towards sports you know what, what was that moment like sat there at heathrow
1: yeah, that, that was a that was a game changer I and mean, that was an absolutely seminal moment because I mean so picture the scene I was actually I'd finished law school um, and I was going back to Finland to do my national service my year's national service so um, you know a little bit of dread but but also at this stage you know the way it worked was that um, I mean going back a couple of years you you in the first term of being a, a law undergraduate, which i'd been if you go back you know you'd sort of rewind three four years, you had to choose or you had to try and get articles with a, with a law firm so and you also had to um, you also had to um, book your place with law school so it was one of those things that sort of they sort of you had to in a sense commit before you even knew anything about anything so i sort of I was sort of going down that legal route, probably because i didn't really have any other idea but so and then this was a pre-internet age so i was in the airport and i I just went to the business uh, book section i mean just thinking well is there something to read or whatever and i as you said i saw mark's book and um it was a light bulb moment because i looked at it and they it mentioned the sports industry or you know the business of sports and i had no idea i had i had this um i had this perspective that somehow to combine a you know business career and sports would be great but it was no more than that it was just something floating around in my waters if you like and looking at the book it was this crystallization of my goodness this world actually exists and so it was it was hair raising because i read the whole book on the plane flights two and three quarters hours but you know whipped through the book and and um and it just showed me that this world that I, you know, would have dreamt about if I'd known, actually did exist. And so that that was the real, um, um, you know, con- conclusion or point out of that. And uh, after that, I became, in a sense, I mean, at that stage, it was an idea I said it is great to exist, but the way into it obviously wasn't. You know, I had no idea at all. Um, but at least it showed me that there was a there was a place that I could aim at.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's interesting for us, Nick, because sort of we're reporting on the business end of sports. But I remember even when Nick interviewed me, you know, I I was a sports fan. I thought I knew sports. And then you start working in the sports industry and you're like, holy wow, this is um this is very complex, very complicated. You know, things like I'm an NFL fan. I have NFL game pass. I couldn't tell you who Delta Trey is, but Actually, Delta Tray is the one that's producing the product that I have. Um, and then AWS is helping deliver it. You know, just the amount of connectivity that reaches through it. Um, it's quite crazy, like, how complicated it actually is. It's more than just there's some games
2: on TV. And also how those brands and deals are done. You look at that and actually reflect on where the, the industry is now. and. There's a reason why there's a lot of lawyers uh, or people with legal um, education uh, in senior positions in the industry because it's quite technical how the licensing world has dominated the way the sports business has been run. So yeah, it is always an interesting eye opener whenever I've interviewed people for jobs over the years is... Do you, do you understand the business of sport? Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of this. Well, you don't have a clue how how things are happening in the, behind the scenes. But maybe we should put point them in the direction of Mark McCormack's book. That might give them a give them a heads Did you ever did you ever meet Mark Timo?
1: Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, so um, w- what then happened was that uh, my great break was that um, I was a, I was a you know I was a article clerk, so trainee lawyer, and um, I then um, actually through a, through one of my peers. At the law firm I was at, this guy had a friend who had left another city, you know, big uh, financial district law firm, and gone to gone to IMG, and then they were at certain stage they were actually looking for another junior lawyer. I mean, so it's completely serendipitous just through this connection, because um, Mark's um, son had um, who had been uh, Breck. This was. Uh, who had been running the legal department was go- moving over to Australia to run their sort of the media business. So anyway, uh, w- one thing led to another and I was able to get that job but purely through these these connections. So so yes, I mean I worked uh, a lot for Mark uh, over over the over the years and um um you know he 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 was always um he always came over to Britain for the summer season, you know, it was kind of Wimbledon and British Open and you know other stuff going on and um and and so he was he was you know it was a small company then i mean it's it's not a you know it's not a global group I and mean, it was img as a standalone uh, entity and um you know i i basically reported in for most of my time into one of uh you know if you like the sort of key lieutenants or the key uh, people running running the business who then reported into mark
2: so img is widely renowned as an organization that has created and nurtured a lot of great individuals who have led the the transition and the the growth of the sports industry. What did you even in, in those years? Then was there a particular culture at IMG that stood out for you? Because a lot of people that I know um, who worked probably l- later in life to say when you were there, they still talked about it was a very intense and you you had to, you couldn't, you couldn't coast there. You really had to earn your stripes. How did you find it back in those days? Was it, was it an intense experience or um, was it up quite an early stage, I guess, in that, in that journey moving over to Britain?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it it was, um, it was intense, but to be honest, uh, and, and, and it was very, very unstructured in those days. It was, you know, you come in and you, you know, you, as an individual, more or less, you had to sort of, you know, make, make, make rain happen. I mean, so, so it was, but, but at that stage of my life, I mean, I joined uh, IMG and I was a, you know, I was a junior lawyer for uh, all of about 11 months before I moved over to the Olympics. I mean, I, I was kind of lucky. I got put into a, a project, if you like. So I learned, I was able to learn and I, we, we all talk about it still being the university of sports uh, management, sports business. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's how I felt but the but the but the the, so the yeah there was a strong culture of um i don't want to call it individualism but because there was a team ethos and i i've always had a you know come from team sports i mean i had a strong feeling of 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 team ethos but um but still you know you had to perform um i mean if that in some ways you you asked about the culture and i i perhaps one thing that comes out to me is maybe not completely about the culture but it's related to it but it was kind of you know what was the essential difference or the skill that img brought and i always remember we had a at one stage we had a bit of a sort of an ex um a presentation a training session that the the youngsters amongst us with with uh, the the person i'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name a guy called john simpson who was who was uh managing all the uh, uh leading the management of the golf clients in europe and um uh, and he gave this talk, and basically two things came out of it. One was that personal relationships were really important, and this was this was very new to me. I came from a law firm, you know, and and to the extent that um, you know, at the time he was managing something like Nick Faldo, Bernard Langer, Ian Woosnam, um, so he was managing kind of three or four of you know of, of the big four, and he was he was their manager, and I think he was. I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure he was best man for at least for Langer and for uh, for, for Faldo, uh, one of Faldo's earlier, uh, you know, so uh, uh, marriages. But um, and then the other thing was that he showed us how, th- and this how you you sold space on a player advertising space, and that, that was the other lesson, which was which was more akin to my legal training was the the importance of of um, of of the detail. Of really reading the detail and making knowing the detail a competitive advantage. So, um, so, but so it was, yeah, it was uh, that was. So, so it was. If you like, those were two, two major planks, and after that, there was a very, you know, I talked about the individual aspect. Maybe it's a sort of entrepreneurial or business developmental aspect that uh, you know you you go, you want to know, you know, you want to teach yourself how to market and, and create and, and understand and create the opportunity, and then then work that through.
0: Well, interestingly, I kind of want to ask a slightly different question. The sense of, you know, this is the Streamtime podcast. We're talking about your induction into the broadcast Hall of Fame that we have, but you've also spent quite a bit of time in marketing and sponsorship. And, you know, you spent a few years um, at Nike, you know, probably the biggest, most recognizable global brand in the world. Um, and, you know, your, your strategy helped land kit deals with the likes of Arsenal, Barcelona, Inter Milan. You know, I'd just be curious to know how your time at Nike perhaps impacted um, your career. And then maybe just beyond that, you know, sitting on both sides of sponsorship deals and broadcast deals, you know, was there anything that the experience helped with that? Are they different? Are they similar? Just be kind of curious to know how that all works together.
1: Yeah. So so the, the time at Nike, so Nike was... Um... A time where you know my, my, I moved on from IMG, and, and I, I think the it was it was a big culture shock, a huge culture shock. So We went from this sort of, what I've described, the sort of more individualistic, uh, deal driven perspective, to suddenly a big company which had supply chains, it had processes, it had pla- you know, it had budgetary cycles. And um, in fact, when I when I arrived at Nike, the first meeting I ever went to was this thing called a bag meeting, which is big audacious goal and they um they they i think they were at nine billion dollars sales uh, worldwide and for the next financial year they were, they were they were you know their big audacious goal was 14 billion and then it ended up a few months later they realized they were actually going to do eight and a half or something uh you know it was just a bit of a reset and uh, and so so all of those processes and company um disciplines you know especially being you know quoted on uh or nicey you know new york stock exchange i mean all that sort of came to came to bear but 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 in terms of like the work side you know there was a there was a incredible passion for sport and athletes which was you know uh, the same as at img but um there you it was there was a much more focus on building the business because what you did wasn't an end in itself it was ultimately to to try and you know reach this big audacious goal or you know reach the revenue targets wherever whatever region or whatever um you know business unit you're in and so it was came much more about teamwork and strategy so how realized really how the onset and, and my role developed much more from uh, doing to sort of setting setting the strategy working with people set the strategy and then driving and and driving the Policies and the resources in the right way. I mean, I'd still do deals, and you know, I did like the ones you've mentioned. I was, uh, I was very much uh, up front on that. But um, but as I said, it was a, it was a it was a much bigger operation and and a uh, you know a, a corporate environment uh, that that um, that we operated in.
2: Those types of deals, Timo, they're still quite a, a powerful and significant part of the industry today. Why do a, organizations like Nike do those kit deals. Is it for the brand exposure, or is it for the sales, or is it just a nice balance of, of both? At least in your experience.
1: Well, look in my experience, and I'm sure the sort of data, uh, you know, the, the the data analytics around it has, has um, uh, increased a lot. But but it was it was to grow your business ultimately, and and so you know I even remember. At the time when uh, you know, at the time I was there it was exciting because Nike was getting serious about football and getting into the business of global football. So, you know, you mentioned the Arsenal deal. You know, we would—it was a bit different to other countries in Europe. But but players had their own boot, you know, their own image rights. Often, you know, it was um, and and at least usually through um, uh, the situation. So they were able to do their own their own shoe deals. Uh, I mean, it's more or less the same that now I, I think. But at, at the time, it wasn't in other markets like like Germany. And so, I mean, at one stage, sitting down with the sales guys, they said, "Look, you know, can you do more of more boot deals?" And, and you know, my perspective. Well, you know, we've already got uh, four in this team, five in this team. I think we had seven in Arsenal. And they explained to me that actually, that that incredibly, there was a correlation between sales in you know the bigger retail outlets and, and the, uh, the 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 proportional boot de- you know the shoe deals they had in and teams and so that was uh, that that was an early lesson not not only it wasn't sort of it seemed like black magic I mean how could possibly it be so closely allied but uh, it was it was um, it was just a lesson in terms of um, of cause and effect and how the linkage you know ultimately uh, which you necessarily didn't necessarily have quite as uh, closely in uh in, in IMG because you are working as an agency or or maybe as a rights holder uh and, and a much more transactional basis. You you did ask me the question about the the second question about the similarity or not between marketing sponsorship and, and broadcast. And look I I I mean they're both science and art, you know, in, in their own ways, but I think maybe the biggest difference is that in broadcast deals generally you have more of a captive market. So it's all about market making because you're, you you want you you can think yourself as an auctioneer if you like whereas um i, I think uh, to my mind the the sponsorship side and of course there are times when it's competitive and you can have an auction of you you know whatever structure or vehicle you have but a lot of it is is much more building value in a sort of i think you know in a collaborative i think you know maybe the the term these days is co-creative sense uh, you know, depending on the sophistication of the, of the marketing vehicle, um, but they're they you know they are a lot you know m- lot more sophisticated these days than they were in the past.
2: Before we move on to the next next phase and stage, um, I'm just curious, Timo, digging back into the IMG role slightly because you were obviously working in Milan at some stage, in Paris, and, and then in London. Where was broadcast rights as part of the conversation? Then was it still a, a sort of emerging? aspect of the quote-unquote business side because obviously img's background historically has been around licensing around sponsorship and uh, on those types of relationships how big a piece was was broadcasting in that dynamism of the of the market back
1: then well yeah no we we used to describe i mean it was big it was big it was significant um we used to describe it as being you know if you people ask what does img do we do well we represent athletes we represent or run events and we uh, we uh, create uh, you know we create television in its various forms and and, and, and so so it was a, it was a, it was a big thing um, and I remember one of the uh, earliest deals I got involved in as a junior lawyer just as I was transferring to uh, to work on the on the Olympics was actually the um, the European uh, television rights to the uh, Wimbledon at the time so this was in 1989 so was, uh, there was a lot going on and um, I, I do remember that I mean to 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 go back a little bit is that you know it was still formative and still developing. So on the production side, it was very very early days. Uh, and I do remember as a as a junior lawyer, I, I drafted. Well, I may not have drafted, but I certainly commented and and um, on the first ever. I think um, it was the it, it's it's the transmission suite apparatus, whatever it is, that sort of basic piece of kit that you need. To if you want to you know begin uh, producing your own uh, programming, so it was it was kind of early days for IMG to start. I mean, obviously now you know that it's uh, it's um, you know it's massive, but um, uh, it started from you know sort of fairly small steps.
2: That IMG Wimbledon relationship is still. A huge, hugely strong today, Uh, we saw the recent extension of that deal. So it just goes to show those, as many of those deals are are still at the heart of the industry and and, um, still super effective, uh, even in this day and age, even with the dynamics of the, the industry changing around media rights and so forth.
0: Yeah, Well, one of the stories I'm interested to talk about, because you mentioned it was a, a learning point for you, and it's something I actually had to spend some time this weekend um, Googling because it, it took place while I was, I think, still playing Little League Baseball. But just wanted to hear a bit more about your experience. And I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. If not, Nick, being the resident Aussie, Ozzy, can do it for me. It's dot Quokka.com. And I spent some time researching it, like I said, and I thought it was a really interesting case study because one of the things Nick has talked about with the OTT industry is that for a while, it didn't feel like the technology with broadcast and the monetization models quite lined up with each other. Um, and OTT sort of bringing that together as an opportunity. And as I was reading this story about Quokka's rise and then eventual bankruptcy, bankruptcy, it almost felt a bit like they're an example of one of those companies that if they'd come out today, it would have made total sense as a business where it felt maybe they were just a little too early um, with the technology with what the the business end of, was ready to do with things. So just be curious to know sort of how your time was there and you know what were the learnings you took from that and maybe for anyone that's not familiar with it, just you know a little bit of a, a background on on what
2: Cooco was.:
1: Yeah, and uh, actually, I want to hear Nick uh, pronounce it going Nick, so
2: it's definitely Quokka. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I thought yeah. I
1: might say it too, too, in a too uh, Britishized way, but it was, I mean, I I, I, I did work with Australians, including uh, one of the founders, yeah. John Bertrand, um, uh, on, on, on that quokka. But um, yeah, no, no, you, you're right. Look, in some ways it was ahead of its time. But I mean, basically, it was the, 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 the idea was founded by John Bertrand and another American uh, cup, cup uh, sailor, Al Ramadan, who... Um, who you know realized that their sport they found incredibly exciting but it's very difficult to follow on television or the traditional uh, you know methods of of uh, at the time of, of following sports events so their idea was to use different data points telemetry biometrics um you know related to the to the the boat, the event the athletes to to tell the story of the um of the uh, of the sport and so so that that, uh, that was the uh, the idea and so you you know you had sort of various you know quite some funky uh executions of this i mean i think you had a um three mountaineers i think who'd spent three weeks you know scaling this vertical wall i forget where it was and they would be you know took their laptops up and you know when they were sleeping on the ledge overnight they'd be you know inputting what what their experience was. so so to to a I mean, a, a sports aficionado, fantastic uh, feedback. I think they did the Whitbread Round the World Race. You know, you'd be getting all sorts of information and, and uh, first-hand, you know, it's the first time you're getting first-hand accounts from the athletes, you know. So, so it, was, it, was, it was groundbreaking that way. We then, you know, we tried to, it was a bit more of a challenge, but we tried to apply it to, for example, uh, we had rights through NBC for the, uh, for the Olympics in Sydney and so we created some great sort of um, engagement tools, I suppose you might say, that, to understand so more graphic-based and data-led representations of athlete um, performances, which which gave a greater insight into, you know, how fast, how heavy, how 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 high, and and that sort of thing. So it was it was great. The issue was at the end of the day was that the 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 the, the advertising market fell out from under un, underneath us, and uh, so it just wasn't may be monetizable as a separate standalone entity espn had actually offered to to buy us i think for 300 million dollars and you know you look back on that now maybe it might not have been that you know bad a deal but you know the perspective was that we'd invented a new form of sports broadcasting if you like and so you know the the the, the, the expectation was that you know we'd, we'd be winging past the traditional broadcasters and buying them Anyway, that was gives <laughs> says as much as about the uh, the the dot com uh, the dot com days as uh, uh, as anything. But but um, so it was it was a it was a you know it was a bit of a wild and wacky time, and it didn't last for long. But uh, it was it was very instructive.
2: And, and that was obviously some twenty to twenty three years ago, when it was an earlier stage in that industry. When you when you say you had the rights, I'm just curious how what sort of was it a, a data type deal um which, you know those ty- types of rights deals are quite common now and worth significant amounts of money but i imagine that was a, a whole new concept back then when you were having those conversations
1: yeah no, it was yes so i mean so there were there were events uh, i mean you know i mentioned this client mountain climbing thing i mean you, you weren't really selling and you know so this was pretty easy to acquire quote-unquote rights from three mountaineers um but i mean yes we, we negotiated with uh you know with um uh, the the organising committee of of the Whitbread Round the World Race and they gave us these sort of um, and you know so they sat over you know traditional sort of highlight broadcast highlight rights and uh, with NBC it was more that we were uh, I suppose we were more a, um, a service uh, provider to them but you know that that being said we we you know we we were also had a direct deal with the Salt Lake City 2002 olympic winter games organizing committee whereby we were the provider of their digital platforms as we would say today i mean website in, in in those days so there was a there was a mix of if you like monetizable rights and then you know fees stroke um uh deals that were sort of structured in the way that there might be some upside on on uh, on on uh, advertising and and uh, you know sponsorship which uh you know would be attracted by those sorts of uh, platforms.
2: Well, who who knows what Quokka could be today if it was uh if it was still around. It'd be an interesting case given it just sounds like it's just ready made for this era as you said Chris.
0: Yeah. Well you you nicely brought up NBC Timo which kind of creates a very natural segue and i know it's a podcast so maybe not everyone else can see it but i'll show it for you um this is sports pro edition number 41 that uh, has you featured on the front there Uh, oh my god yeah
1: so i don't think i was working out very much in those days
0: (laughs) don't worry the cover the cover looks great it looks timeless but that feature came out in 2012 and in that interview you were discussing the tv rights negotiations for the u.s broadcast rights um, from 2014 onwards and that process included espn fox and nbc and at the time you discussed how important that set of rights was and i think they ended up going for 4.38 billion initially And not too long after that it, it got extended through to to 2032 you know how Does a deal of that length, of that size, you know, actually get completed? You know, I think it'd be interesting for us, you know, the audience, you know, what are the types of things that goes on, go on in those kind of conversations? Is there anything that that might be surprising to hear are part of those negotiations? You know, it is such a, a large deal. And you've mentioned in our sort of pre-interview that that's probably your most memorable achievement during your time at the IOC.
1: Yeah. So, um, i i guess um i mean a couple of things i mean firstly i think it's those sorts of deals are founded on uh, i think there has to be an aligned a joint and aligned vision um forgive the sort of management speak but you you have to have the decision makers who see things in a similar way and and see the opportunity in a similar way and i think that was the case i mean nbc and and you know, the, the chairman of the uh, sports group was Dick Ebersole in those days. Although then, um, just before the first, the first, the four point three eight deal, he actually left, and as Comcast took over the company, so Comcast management took over, and and Mark Lazarus became the uh, the, the chair, oh. uh, and and for the second deal. But um, essentially. They had had a track record of acquiring the games more, and and if you you know you actually Dick Ebersole's recently come up with uh, his uh, autobiography, and there he he writes it pretty clearly, but it's written, been written separately. But in the nineties, they um, and and in the early noughties, they they hit upon a model of acquiring rights to multiple games, and so basically foreclosing the market, going in and, and, and getting those, and so at this stage. They were still interested in doing that, but um, but we 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 felt that we had to because they were long term deals. We had to still go to the market and create a, a you know proper tender process. So so I think that the, the first thing was just clearly that it, these things only work if you've got a really aligned perspective from the buyer and the seller. And from an Olympic perspective, we tend to look at things long term rather than uh, short term partly because we have a we have a sort of business model which lends itself to to certainty because we you know the IOC is effectively if you like um, a collection and clearing house we support the um, obviously the the games editions we make big uh, uh, commitments and uh, financial commitments and service commitments to them for the organization the games we make big commitments and um financial commitments, uh, support commitments to the two hundred and six teams or the National Olympic Committees. And also the um, you know, as a function of that the um 35 or so um uh, winter games and summer games federations actually form the you know form the content, the sporting content. And so so that you know, our our perspective is is as much about solid partnerships that will will uh, create the value and the value in this case of course part of it is is financial but as much as anything you know you're dealing with you know if you go back to the basic Olymp- olympic construct it's about sports that don't necessarily get their time in the light or get as much visibility and certainly athletes that don't get as much visibility and of course that's the the magic of the uh, of, of the olympic games that it brings these uh, these athletes and sports to, um uh, you know, gives their their moment to to shine. So, so there was there was that alignment in absolute spades, um, and and you know when Thomas Bach took over from Jacques Rog as the as the IOC president uh, at the tail end of uh, twenty thirteen, that's what led then into the discussion for a further extension of those of those of those deals. We'd also, I mean, this is more a technicality, but we had renegotiated uh the ioc deal with the united states olympic committee now the U- united states olympic and paralympic committee usopc um, so our sort of revenue share for the us market uh, or, or coll- you know collaborative deal which uh, which allowed us to move forward in the us had been renewed to 2040 the year before so all of those things have been set and so um that's how the how the two deals got done i think for for the rest of it you'd be you'd be um I mean the the, the broadcast deals um, it's interesting i, I was um, I was talking to one of our us uh, lawyers who was very instrumental in 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 managing the whole sort of legal process around that and and you know he goes all miss the eyed you know thinking about the contract and you know trust me I, I don't go miss the eye maybe I might pass out. Uh, through border but i mean the you know the, i think most people would but but he goes misty-eyed because because there's been so much uh time and energy and um and gray matter spent on creating a a, a document that protects the ioc and the olympic movement whilst giving you know our, our uh, in, you know very important partner NBC everything that they need um, and so you know that's much more maybe mundane, but I I think it's just an important thing to say because that much as the vision and the lead you know the leaders giving the direction, if you can't convert that into a um, you know in, into a piece of paper that both parties or all parties are willing to sign, uh, then you you know you're wasting your time and it's it's just hot air. So it, it's both you know it's both of those things, and I, I can't really understate how much. Work has gone into creating this this uh, this strategic partnerships, which which you know works you know every day for us and continues to work, you know even in a you know very disruptive and uh, in a in a much changed uh, and changing uh, uh, media landscape.
2: In this specific um, the NBC deal that we've sort of been talking around and about, that's by far the let's say that the benchmark pretty much for most sports but definitely uh, definitely for the IIC at the very least what other types of obviously not the same scale per se but other arrangements or broadcast partnerships do you have with the same similar sort of framework even if it's even if it's not the same scale that maybe fed off the success of that NBC arrangement is that something that you have been able to transfer in some key markets
1: yeah yes um I mean at the time and this is before my time but um you know both for Europe and Asia were sort of uh, a little bit sort of up and coming but based off the the NBC model we were able to really you know transition and uh, and transfer and I I think sort of even in markets where there may not be a market per se the the importance of that we were able to bring the importance of the Olympics to bear on those markets so in other words from our perspective, we were able to um, demonstrate the value and the business model to the broadcasters in very, very different markets. Um, and I think for the broadcasters, they saw n- not just as an article of faith, but I think in a in a much more detailed way, the value that a sports, particularly a gatekeeper deal, where they were effectively taking all the rights, you know, not not a, a part of the rights. That, you know the value that it uh, that it creates. So you know we've 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 seen this in Europe. We've seen this in various territories. Um, you know whether it's even with the state broadcaster in, in China with the CMG group. You know formerly CCTV. Certainly in Japan. Um, very much in the, in the in the in the smaller but important markets uh, of of the of the you know the, the Anglo-Saxon markets as you, you might call them in, in Canada and Australia um so so and 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 actually in in newer markets where you've got um situations where you may have uh, pay broadcasters who then have an obligation to sub-license to to free to air broadcasters you know so i'm talking middle east north africa actually europe at the moment um so it's it's a a lot of it has come off that i mean not only this the, the the you know the the knowledge, but also the faith of of the fact that the value is there. So you've got both the technical detail component, and then the leadership of these uh, these these groups are able to um, to to trust uh, that the value is there. Um, obviously, you know they still have their own context, and you know the games are important in their own territories in various ways. But um, you know certainly it's been a sort of standard bearer for us.
2: So, Tim, when you were brought in, uh, or when you started working in IOC, <clears throat> was it a, was it a kind of a split between the broadcast Uh, business and the partnerships side pretty evenly or was it more was it more dynamic than that or was it uh, more more specific or was at one point more focused than the other
1: well uh, it was just structured differently so um, I mean there was an external agency managing the 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 marketing side and then the the broadcast side was managed internally through my predecessor with with uh, various IOC members who were kind of um, you know relevant to to those areas so what what uh, what I was able to do, and and really that was the premise of my joining the IOC was to unify all commercial activities under one roof, which became IOC a, a Television Marketing Services. Um, now, financially speaking, at the time when I joined, the um, the 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 broadcast—I have to quickly think about this—but I mean the broadcast was probably about probably about 80 percent 20 so 80 percent then 20 percent uh you know global marketing so these are deals that you know the IOC does directly and that's changed over time now you know it's probably nearer. Uh, you know maybe even uh, 65 30 uh 60 well 60 40 um so as as time's gone on
2: and the, the biggest I don't know if you could just give us a quick snapshot on the the difference in the framework? Obviously, you have the top partner program, which is quite famous. I'm not sure how much you guys are, are living in by that model. Is it still the top partner program or is it evolved, evolving with your assets on the sponsorship partnership side? Obviously, broadcasting is much more dynamic. You have to treat it market by market. But yeah. is that still the approach on the on the, the sponsorship and marketing side that it is following the top model?
1: Yeah, bro- broadly speaking, yes, Nick. Um, I mean, the, the, so the, the, the top program is... I guess unique in the sense that it's a picnic basket of of everything. So you get the you get head office which is the IOC, you get the events, you get the summer games or winter games and you get all the teams as well. And you know, we've we've as we've so that's the sort of key basic structure that I took on when when I started. And over time we've added things on. So we have um we have the youth games now. Uh, Youth Olympic Games but we also have um, new new uh, sets of assets whether it's digital whether it's uh, purpose uh, led you know CSR uh, and others that we're, we're developing which would be uh, new sort of event based uh, type of uh, things but I mean the core of it is still is still the way it was before whereas um, as you say broadcast um, um, I, I mean it's it's still very much uh, either region or or, or market led. Um I mean and and I think the sort of more c- classical uh, broadcast structure approach uh you know is is applied depending on what the market is providing. So uh you know whether it's uh, I mean our, our favorite deals are usually gatekeeper deals meaning that we get, we sell all the rights to one you know master licensee if you like and um uh, uh just because it's a lot easier for us and it's quite difficult to to preempt in a particular marketplace, what would bring value and how you would slice and dice the rights.
2: Did you find the risk around that feels like would be you're putting your your success, your long-term success in the hands of others? you yeah, sure that the financials might be secure, but then you've got to make sure this entire framework is in place to ensure that the production and the distribution of your content is is, is to the expectations of the Was did you find that difficult or was that where your legal background came in and you were able to make sure that was formulated appropriately so there was not a lot of risk in those sort of sub-license deals
1: look everything has risk obviously but I think you you, you create the um a, a type of structure which will protect the you know the the rights holder as much as possible so in, in the context of sub-licensing we have certain uh, requirements um, I mean most most uh, uh, well-known is the free-to-air requirement. So we require at least 200 hours for a summer games or 100 hours for a winter games to be shown uh, uh, free-to-air, or actually it's now a free-to-view that we've uh, evolved around. But um, So, I mean, from a, from a practical perspective, I mean, we have had situations where there have been, particularly when you've had uh, newer free-to-air or, or free-to-view you know, vehicles, platforms, channels, uh, coming on air and we not being totally, um, sure that, um, uh, you know, they, they hit the requisite, uh, benchmark of, uh, of, uh, of reach. Um, not, not so much market share. It's really about reach. Um, and that can, uh, you know, occasionally that's have had quite sort of explosive, uh, public reactions when, uh, when those things have been done. So we always had to balance it out. But I think the key point that you're driving after is that the IOC, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't lock the door and throw away the keys and we stay very much, um, uh, there with, with the with the with the broadcast partner to make sure that, you know, we are protected, but ultimately also that they're protected, albeit of course they need to be making their buck back as well.
0: Well, you know, we one of the things that'll be interesting, John Miller was also inducted to the Hall of Fame. You know, he's been at NBC for over forty years, and you know, he's now the president of programming. I don't know whether or not you had you know interactions with John, but certainly Nick and I will will ask the same question. And It'll be interesting to hear um, what sort of response John gives. You know, sitting on the other side of that negotiating table from you.
1: Yeah, no, no, I mean, you know, John's, uh, I've, I've you know, we've met um, a few times over the years, and um, you know, he's a he's a classy. Um, you know professional and and uh, and and human being and uh, I mean I couldn't be happier for him that he got uh, he got selected for 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 the hall of fame you know but but you know someone like John I mean it, it's 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 never been um, or with with NBC as a whole it's always been uh, collegial you know it's always been I mean the, the deals at the end of the, the days I mean as I said you of course the, you know the rights fee and the money is important and you know it represents still about fifty percent of the of the tonnage that we get from uh, from broadcast deals, and so we have absolutely no interest from an IOC perspective to run and hide on it. You know we have to be there every day building the value, um, and you know we we have a we have a you know highly competent professional um, host broadcast unit which is OBS Olympic Broadcast Services, uh, run by a uh, Yannis Exarchos and. Uh, you know, I, I mean, they are absolutely, um, um, you know, tied at the hip in terms of you know the service scope and levels to make sure that uh, all broadcasters, but of course, especially NBC, are getting what they need.
2: Just on that uh, that arrangement, Timo, on looking thinking about it from like the lens of say, a, uh, I'm using words that might might irk you, but standardized partnership, standardized deal with a broadcaster. O- the OBS, the broadcast production is all provided by. OBS in these in, in almost every single deal right because you want to standardize what the produ- the production quality are typically streaming rights uh these days included in there or have you explicitly excluded uh, them from deals moving forward uh, how uh, what is a standard a standardized sort of broadcast deal look like these days uh, you know if a broadcaster was coming to you guys wanting to to look at the the Olympics as a, as a partner
1: yeah, no. I, mean, I go back to what I said earlier, Nick. I mean, for for, for us, a standardized deal is a gatekeeper deal. So, a, a, a you know, and and or let, or let's say it's not so much a standardized, but it's our preferred deal, and it's it's purely for the for the reason that it is very difficult for us to second guess what is what you know how the rights should be sliced and diced based on the uh, you know the particular market, the makeup of the market in terms of. Uh, you know, sporting interest, but also the um, you know the the media players in that market. So it's it's much easier for us to provide that to, you know, to a master licensee, and then for them to to um, to do it then with our, if you like, our kind of um, approve oversight and, uh, and 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 support on that. Now, that being said, I mean we have had a ca- occasion and we've done it where we've dealt with sometimes, and we we still have ongoing deals where we don't. Um, um, we, we don't actually have a deal directly with a broadcaster. We may be dealing with, um, with an agency. So that's the case in Southeast Asia with, with, uh, where we have Dentsu, for example. Um, and we've, we've sliced deals sort of horizontally, uh, before, you know, as much as anything to create, um, you know, create as, as any rights holder to create the value, but also the competition in the marketplace. But, but generally, as I said, we, we, um, we, we still find it. I mean, just from a management perspective, I mean, you know, just in, in, in TMS here, uh, we have, uh, we have about 75 people and in the, you know, of which about 15 are in the, in the media rights piece. And so, you know, just by dint of the way that we structure ourselves and we see that the best value coming, uh, you know, with the, with the optimal, you know, cost, if you like, or investment, uh, it lends itself to, to, um, to, to broadcasters taking those rights and then uh, uh, you know commercializing monetizing them uh, you know themselves
2: a quick question just further on the streaming side did you find when streaming became a thing uh, so to speak across the industry did that cause you many challenges because I'm imagining at certain at earlier stages we've seen it across other sports properties they didn't really have those contingencies in place around streaming rights and so when it came to fruition with quite a bit of a head of steam, they had to try and work out how to move forward with these. You know, would, would, would broadcasters just get given those? Would they be excluded? How did you find that initial, initial moment? Afterwards, it's, it's been quite a splice and dice model across the industry, but some deals they are included, some deals they aren't. But at that moment, when it started to become a thing, what was that a challenge for you or was it just another conversation you had to have with your broadcast partners?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a challenge. I think it was another... Another uh, distribution channel, which then impacted on—I mean, I, I think it certainly impacted on the structure of deals, how you would strike them. As you say, is it—is it a gatekeeper? Is it sliced up? There was there certainly questions around the the monetization model, and this is whether they're bundled into an overall deal or they're standalone. And then there's there's uh, there's issues I think, or, or let's say teething problems. There's developmental aspects about the whole um, consumer side. You know, is there going to be adoption by by the uh, the the audience of a, a number of standalone streaming packages, or do they are they going to be need to be packaged and sold through a portal? Um, the whole navigation in us in in our um, in our world. You know, given that there's a um, you know up to 7000 hours of content for a summer games and um you know well over 1000 for the winter games it's 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 a challenge i mean you know you know people don't want to be more than two clicks away from their content um so so there's there, there's various advantages i mean I, I would say ultimately you know we've got a new marketplace forming and it's going to form over a number of years in our case, it's quite interesting because in the majority of markets, we are either sold through 32 or we're trying to sell through 32. And so we won't necessarily, in all markets, if we've done a gatekeeper deal, be exposed to some of those, let's say, the challenges. But we would be working very closely with the, um, the broadcast rights holder, the media rights holder, to make sure that the, the, um, ultimately the product is the best that it can be to lead to you know customers, you know audience satisfaction as well as a as a, a hopefully a sustainable um, commercial um, basis.
2: Another another question: So on this this sort of model now, you're talking. You've got a runway now, an, an incredible runway through 2032 with most of your partners. One of the key partnerships or gatekeepers type style deals that you have is with Discovery, um, who has been a partner. I think they they partner through Paris, if I remember through Paris. Yeah, yeah, through 24 Paris. Paris. So that's an interesting deal where obviously a lot of the the games over the years have been not only available on free-to-wear as part of that, um, but extensively available on free-to-wear. And the, the Discovery deal, particularly in markets like the UK, with the layer of streaming on top has created this whole new opportunity about distribution. But has been met with some, I guess, market dynamic challenges because you have the the BBC is seen as the home of of the Olympics and of of sport largely in the UK. But they, in this most recent cycle, they still had a load of content available on the BBC, relatively speaking. But now market expectation seems to have changed so much that there's an expectation from audiences that they want more of it available in sort of free to wear or free to view platforms. And most of it actually sat with Discovery, who's not a big player in the UK market, though they're evolving rapidly, have Eurosport, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel that this is, we're in kind of a transition to get that dynamic right? Do you feel that was a, the the, sort of the comments around it, you know, needing to be more valuable, sorry, more present on BBC is is unwarranted because it actually was more than what it used to be. Uh, One or two cycles ago, how do you feel about that sort of, that sort of a, in ecosystem of rights and, and how they're being displayed in markets like the UK.
1: Yeah, and I mean that the the UK is an interesting example of where you're getting a, a fundamentally getting a clash of um, the transactional commercial piece with with uh, with the, with the you know with the consumer with the, with the fan the audience, and um, you know clearly we saw that there was some dissatisfaction because maybe. The expectations, you know, the, the reality of one the commercial structure didn't meet exactly the the expectations of the of of the fans, and so from our perspective, that should be an opportunity for the marketplace to maybe redress that. In the UK context, we know that um, you know the BBC, of course, is a is a long standing uh, you know Olympic broadcaster, and they have a specific, very specific. Um, Role in, uh, in 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 both the uh, the hearts and the minds of uh, of, of uh, UK audiences, um, as well as you know the regulatory side, which is uh, you know could even be you know change um, you know re- or, or be, be uh, further fortified um, in not too distant future. But um, you know the other side of it, and and this we see it sometimes in other markets uh, going a little bit faster is is the uh, is consumer habits. You know, and I, I I do think that um, you know the, the the UK market is not a market that's going to crystallise and stay the same for the next five to six years. It's going to continue to change, and um, you know driving that will be uh, will be um, you know audience consumer habits. So how that then translates to a commercial opportunity for the IOC and. Maybe more importantly for the for the media rights holders, you know whether it's one or it's a it's 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 a it's a it's a, it's a package of them. You know we'll have to see. But um, I think I think that the, the the key thing. I mean we see this across um, you know many markets, and there are often a lot of commonalities. But obviously the approach of a regulator or the business model or the um, consumer habits will be somewhat different. But some of the sort of key themes will stay the same. Um, and at the end of the day, you want to do a deal whereby the, 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 the person buying your rights and investing your rights is able to not only keep the consumer happy, but also find the right uh, monetization model. And I, I, obviously, it sounds very basic. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but the way you arrive at that is often, um, it can be quite complex. And I, I think in the UK context, I think it's almost like a transitional phase, maybe. Uh, that will um, that will you know uh, need maybe a you know a few more years to to tr- you know maybe maybe truly land in a way that um, uh, that the the fan is uh, you know completely happy.
0: Well, Timo, I know when we commit to do things like this, sixty minutes sounds like it's more than enough time to go through things, and I appreciate uh, we're kind of getting on the borderline of that that sixty minutes there, uh, but it is quite a lot to go through your entire career, and you know, Nick wanting to ask a number of questions about the IOC
2: strategy, but yeah, I'm yeah. conscious we're out, we are sort <laughs> of out of time. If we had a couple, a couple just a couple more minutes, I, I did want to ask about.
1: Yeah, no, that's fine, that's fine. I've got I've got my minder Ben next to me, and he he hasn't sort of. Got up. You know, hasn't, the the horse whip isn't out yet. So,
2: well, just one question before I uh, let uh, Chris go further. Actually, I told him I w- um, would be quiet, but I, I'm too interested in all these these questions. Is is the Olympic Channel? Um, what role What role did that play? Does that play now for you? Or let me rephrase that. Perhaps was it something that you uh, identified? I remember that was in Thomas Baxter, sort of one of his statements he made publicly that this was going to be a key project and a key strategy in the ISC movement but how did that play out for from your lens was that something that was uh, really a heart and center of um, taking up a lot of time for you in terms of the development and uh, creation of that or was it something that was just uh, laid into the the diff- different channels that were part of your your wider remit
1: yeah so so yeah that's no, a really good question to make it as succinct as possible Thomas Bach all, always had a vision I mean, over the decades that he's been an IOC member, I think to, to to have some sort of dedicated Olympic channel, uh, and and um, and I think when it came to you know that being part of his um, his manifesto to to get elected as as president, and then it came to life, um, you know, he really gave the um, the the task to me and 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 Yannis Exarchos to 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 to, to um, you know put meat on the bone and. Come up with a, a feasible uh, uh, business model, and so really, the the uh, and and you know, I'm sure a lot of your 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 viewers will recognize this, but you know, this is the the idea here is, was, was to start going direct to consumer. If you're going to direct to consumer, you're then wanting to engage them every day of the year in in a way that they want, uh, which means that you have to have tools that gives them the type of content they want um in return you know if we do our job really well we get lots of um lots of subscribers and we get uh we get their data and, and all the rest of it and i think you know the, the very familiar so you know our, our our perspective on it wasn't any different so olympic channel has now morphed into actually the sort of a consolidation of a lot of different digital platforms it now comes under olympics.com um and uh you know olympic channel if you like is really the um is the sort of content area of that you know the watch watch area of that so uh, but but yes it was a, it was a, it was a major move i think for many reasons one is that um, i think any brand any institution has to stay relevant by by having a um, digital uh, interface that is um, you know can be accessed by by everyone and um, in in the most engaging and, and, and exciting way um, i mean it's very much a, a balance of that in terms of the overall medium mix for the future you know people people young people particularly won't wait four years now to uh, to look at the games on a cathode ray tube you know in the corner of a room like like uh, perhaps uh, at least i did but um and and so so it's it's really important it's also um uh gives us more flexibility in terms of our media arrangements in certain markets it actually Provides more value to to our media rights holders uh, in in different ways, um, and um, and it's also incredibly important for our top partners have been very clear to t- tell us that uh, we we do have to develop these uh, these types of assets and and uh, if you like reach and platforms to be able to so that the you know the the Olympic they can they can properly utilise through their sponsorships the the Olympic brand uh, as part of their uh, you know the, their, their their overall um, engagement with marketplace. There's
2: always there's always been a lot of debate around the Olympic channels, like how it fits into the the I C uh, television strategy. Um, and over the years, I don't know how long many years it's been running now, but it's been running for several years. Um, there's been a lot of um, again questions as to. What, what's the long-term plan and vision for the platform? And has it been a success and to this point? I think the, 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 the description of what you saw as the benefits are are consistent with what we do here across the industry. The, probably the challenges I would expect that maybe the ISE is faced in adoption uh, perhaps might be similar to what others are facing, but we're all outside looking in, Satimo. So what have been some of the, the, the challenges that you have seen with launching a product like that and, and fitting into the wider strategy?
1: I think maybe the, the the I mean, you know, once we had the political uh, will to do it, uh, you know, that wasn't so much the issue. That might might be the case in other other worlds. Um, and we got the investment, and we were able to to fire ahead. I think the the, the maybe the the key challenge is to re, is to continue to evolve the platform and the product, uh, and the you know, the way that you manage, for example, the, the, the content mix, the way that you engage with, uh, with your audience and your, and your fans in a way that continues to be relevant to them, to the audience. I mean, you can't just build it and say, okay, we've done that now. Let's just carry on doing the same thing. There's actually a mindset, which is, you know, which is somewhat different to, a, you know, a, a sports um, organization of constant change. You know, and, and understanding the audience, and so it's, it's 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 a it's a harbinger of of part of the IOC, really the sort of commercial media part, really moving much more forwards to uh, to to thinking and managing self as a brand. So um, you know, I, th- I think I think that, and, and you know, I described it as a challenge. It's a challenge structurally initially. But I think, uh, you know, we're well on the way to, to starting to, to execute a plan and allowing ourselves this sort of developmental um, room so that, you know, things don't where We continually, continually change. Do, do you
2: see that, um, last question, sorry, Chris, I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll hand over to you a second, but do you see that things like olympics.com in the near future, obviously you're um, wrapping up soon on, on what, on your role with, with the IAC and so forth. and. Well, you know, we might not be looking that far ahead now these days, as you perhaps were. Um, but do you see the Olympics.com as playing a um, a key role in broadcasting the games live in the in the near future, or is that just is it more just a distribution uh, channel for the, the quite a comprehensive content business now that the Olympics has in telling the, the stories from all the different nations and and, and the Olympics movement itself.
1: Yeah. look I I mean I don't necessarily see it becoming a, a sudden uh, uh, you know rights holder in a major market I mean it's uh, you know the, the, those markets developed markets have very very established media companies with deep pockets and and uh, well-established uh, you know audience spaces and all the rest of it but but there, there have been markets where we've we've uh, we've trialed it you know so for example for the Beijing games in India uh, and it was pretty successful there in terms of you uh, uh, acquisition, reach, and and, and retention. Um, so you know it's one of those things that you 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 continue to 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 work on it. So let let's say it's still the majorly focused on a as a as a as a broadcast support as an additional asset for for our partners. But we uh, you know as as um, as markets change and develop, you know we 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 continue to build those capabilities though so that we can. If we choose so to do, uh, ultimately become our own broadcaster.
0: So I'll wrap us up with just two final questions. Uh, hopefully, they're a bit more, a uh, bit easier to, to go through. But you know, we've gone through uh, almost basically your entire life, not just your career. And you know, one of the things my father's always said: if I had to go back in time, but I forgot everything, I wouldn't do it. So if I gave you the opportunity, Timo, and I said you can go back to the start of your career, but you can remember at least one thing. You know, what's one thing you you kind of wish? as you were taking that transition to IMG, knowing all you know now, is there is there one thing in particular uh, you wish your younger self was aware of?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I, look, I I, I think um, you know you can only ask answer a question like that with something that's going to um, ride you in or, or uh, in in good stead throughout your career. So, I mean, I would say I would ultimately say relationship with people, you know, because that leads to team building, it leads to, you know, all good things and, you know, sport like, uh, you know, most other uh, industry sectors, ultimately, uh, you know, people businesses. So um, um, it, it, and, and I, I say that because I came out of a, you know, of a, of a the, the legal industry where to an extent, you know, you had a much more formalized uh, sort of relationship with colleagues and with clients and so forth. And um, it was, it was not something that you necessarily proactively worked at. Um, and I came to understand that that was something that you proactively worked at. You couldn't, you know, people wouldn't just suddenly understand that you were a very valuable professional and a nice person. So I, I think that would be the, the sort of key thing which underpins ultimately, um, if you like, it's sort of a, your own set of values and your own culture as to, to it underpins how you, how you move forward and how you, you know, ultimately interact with people.
0: Absolutely. And then finally, the last question, you know, we've alluded to it. Uh, you're, you're retiring here shortly, you know, after this long career, you know, your husband, your father, what's next? What, what are you just looking forward to, to being able to do in that next phase?
1: Oh, Chris, if I knew that, <laughs> if I knew that, um, um, maybe you should ask my wife, actually, she's probably got a better <laughs> idea. It's probably a bit of gardening and not washing up or something. Now I, I look on, honestly, um, I'm going to take a step back. Um, in all honesty, I haven't planned beyond going skiing in January. Um, and, you know, I want to take a little bit of time off and, and just let the, uh, you know, sort of smell the roses and, um, uh, and, and kind of see what, what, what comes. I mean, I, I am, I will continue as an advisor to the IOC that that'll underpin, you know, uh, you know, a lot of what I may or may not do in the future. Um, but, um, you know, I think that the, the point was after eighteen years was to, to get off the, the merry-go-round and, uh, you know, have a little bit of time to myself and my my my, my wife and I and, uh, and and the family to, to think about things. So um, I think that that precious commodity, time, um, will uh, will uh, become a little bit of an asset as opposed to my taskmaster. I hope.
0: Absolutely. Well. Timo, I appreciate you taking the time out to speak to us. And, you know, it's congratulations for being a part of our our inaugural Hall of Fame class. It's certainly a career uh, very deserving of that. And I appreciate, you know, being able to hear some of your experiences, some of your stories, um, and just how you went across your journey. There's certainly things young in my career I can certainly relate to some of those things. So, Nick, I don't know if there's anything else you kind of want to add to that, but I do appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today, Timo.
2: No, just, just to, to follow those sentiments really, Chris, um, really appreciate you finding the time for us, Timo, and, and enjoy uh, smelling the roses and enjoy that skiing in January. It's no doubt well-deserved and the impact you've had, particularly to the IOC uh, over these last 18 or however many years you've had at, at the, the organization itself has, has, no, has clearly been a, a pretty transformative one. Look forward to seeing um, what holds next for the IOC as well um, once you um, move into your advisor role.
1: Well, thanks very much, Nick and Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the uh, opportunity.
0: Brilliant. Thanks. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast.